Hi everyone, this is Jennifer from the Healing After Birth podcast. I just wanted to preface this podcast that um, you are about to listen to with Hermine Hayes-Klein. And this podcast was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Therefore, uh, some of the topics that we discussed, um, in particular around uh, informed consent, enthusiastic informed consent, and uh, the role of the doula in the birth room, much of this has changed due to some of the new mandates and protocols. Therefore, I recognize that we need to have a follow-up conversation to which I have reached out to Hermine in hopes to be able to engage a conversation about navigating these changes in the birth room from a legal perspective and posing the question, do today's birthing mothers and parents have the right to informed consent to say no to some of the mandates and protocols or have we lost our rights in the birth room? So without further ado, I invite you to listen to this wonderful, stimulating conversation that I had with Hermine. I just love talking with Hermine. I imagine that you will love this podcast as well. I also just want to um, do a little shout out to let everybody know about the very exciting new offer uh, that I have been working hard to create. It's called Therapy for Moms. It's an online therapy service in which we have a staff of perinatal mental health therapists who are being mentored by me, Jennifer, uh, who specialize in the area of motherhood and are absolutely passionate about serving today's moms. So if you are Canadian, you can access these services at www.therapyformoms.ca. And if you are outside of Canada, we have a team of coaches available to be able to cross borders online. So I hope to see you on the Therapy for Moms platform, as well as to check out our Therapy for Moms Facebook page and our Motherhood Musing group. I look forward to getting to know some of you. So please say hi, follow us on Instagram at ask.therapy. And again, follow us on Instagram at healingafterbirth. And again, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Okay, so hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healing After Birth podcast. I am so excited today to introduce you all to Hermine Hayes-Klein. Hermine is an attorney and international advocate for women's rights in maternal health care. From 2008 to 2012, Hermine taught international law at The Hague University in the Netherlands, where she was the director of a research center for reproductive rights. Since 2012, Hermine has organized six multi-stakeholder international conferences on human rights and childbirth in Europe, 
the U.S., South Africa, and India spoken publicly around the world on human rights in maternal health care, consulted on legislation relating to birth and breastfeeding in multiple jurisdictions, and worked directly on many legal cases relating to midwifery, informed consent, shared decision-making, and modern maternity care. Hermine and her family live in Portland, Oregon. And I'm thrilled to have you on the show, Hermine. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for welcoming me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I know we're going to have a wonderful conversation. And so I would like to um, just preface by letting our listeners know that Hermine and I met uh, recently at a conference in Alberta, a midwifery conference in Alberta. And we just loved each other. Her work is incredible. And just the conversations that both Hermine and I had, even outside of the conference walls, have been so inspiring. So I know that our listeners will be inspired by whatever it is that we talk about today. Thank you, Jennifer. I feel the same <laughs> about our conversations. Yeah. So let's begin um, with a question around what inspired you to become an advocate for human rights in childbirth? Okay. Um, well, I guess it was um, both my personal and my professional experience coming together. Um, personally, I had the experience of, you know, when I became pregnant with my first child in 2007, moving from the U.S. to the Netherlands, um, when because my husband got a job there. He's an architect. And so I had this experience of moving to a really different maternity care system um, that was sort of has always been constructed so that healthy women were cared for by midwives. Um, and traditionally, meaning throughout the 20th century and well into the 21st, you know, uh, you know, give birth at home with midwives and they save the doctors and the hospitals for backup. And they've always had better outcomes in the United States, although they also have really diverse populations, global populations in their big cities um, like Amsterdam and Rotterdam where we hmm. lived. Um, and so they're, sort of like a national indictment of the story that the, you know, in order for women and babies to survive childbirth, it's important for all women to present for care at the hospital and be cared for, you know, have the babies delivered by doctors. And so that got me sort of studying and looking at these sort of different models of maternity care and um, sort of why the American model that I was coming from had come to be constructed the way it was. And, and sort of, I came to learn through that, that it had never really been about the safety and health of mothers and babies as much as, you know, it had been about sort of organized medicine and organized obstetrics trying to, um, you know, eliminate the competition of midwives as competitors um, for the care of the sort of healthy population. Um, and, uh, and, and you then, sort of bringing in all women and, and sort of doing that by sort of defining childbirth as a pathological condition that women only sort of survive, women and babies only survive through the deliverance of doctors and then moving all women into the hospitals for sort of one size fits all institutional care. Um, and, and, so, and so I started to learn that a lot of these sort of standards of institutional care were not really evidence-based and never had, had been so much about evidence of what's safe or healthy for women and babies as much as like the convenience of the institution and the providers. Um, and that's everything from, you know, the way that women were positioned on their backs, which is not sort of helpful for, for normal physiological childbirth, to the sort of... Um, drugs and um, sort of surgical interventions to which they've been subjected over the 
last century um, mm-hmm. in, in sort of different ways at different times. Um, and so I started to sort of, and then meanwhile, I gave birth in that system in, in you know, mm-hmm. a really supported home birth system. And, you know, because it was sort of culturally normal, it was fully integrated. And so, you know, the health insurance company that I called when I got there said, are you going to give birth at home or in the hospital? And within a week, I had a box of home birth supplies at my door, mm-hmm. um, which is unthinkable in the United States. You know, most home births weren't, you know, covered and it's still really difficult to get coverage for out of hospital birth in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, more importantly, my midwife had complete respect and transparency with, um, backup providers in a way that's much more normal in Canada where midwives are a respected profession that have, from what I understand, for the most part, the ability to practice both inside and outside the hospital setting and have continuity of care between those settings that, um, sort of organized medicine in the United States had sort of made that impossible and continued to resist that kind of integration in a way that, made the choice for out-of-hospital birth less safe in the United States um, because, you know, the midwives and the doctors couldn't openly communicate during pregnancy about labs and tests and things that they might and consultations so that, um, you know, the plan for out-of-hospital birth is is done so in the safest way. And then also um, midwives could not rely on respectful communication in the event of tra- transferring the client in the event that the client needs medical care. Um, and the women themselves sometimes face sort of punitive pushback, um, you know, and again, the reason for, and, and in the form of, for example, leaving them in the waiting room, you know, mm. when they actually need emergent care, um, because, you know, they sort of get what they deserve for having sort of, you know, dared to choose for a home birth. So all of that kind of moral opprobrium over the choice for out-of-hospital birth or midwifery care was gone in the Netherlands so that, it was predictably safe and supported and I was able to give birth in that system in a way that was really safe and supported. Mm. And what's more, every woman who gives birth in the Netherlands gets at least eight days full, full-time postpartum care in her home, um, up to two weeks if you had a C-section or twins or a more complicated birth. Um, and that person not only does provides all the nursing care to mother and baby sort of tracks their well-being and healing and makes sure that everybody's doing okay, but also does all the cooking, cleaning, um, you know, uh, strips the sheets and makes the bed up fresh every day, cleans the bathroom. Um, hmm. It takes the, takes the older children to the playground, everything so that the mother can really rest and bond with her baby as much as she wants to and needs to throughout that period. And also teaches, you know, new mothers, as I was with my first baby, um, newborn care, which, you know, is invaluable when you, you know, don't come from our culture where you have a lot of exposure to newborns and know how to, you know, wash the baby without dropping it on the floor, for example. Mm. Um, so I really loved and appreciated that all of that, the care that I received, which was really individualized care instead of one size fits all care and the cost of the health insurance of my home birth plus midwifery, you know, with midwifery care plus eight days postpartum care was 5,500 euro, which is like less than half the cost of a vaginal birth in the U.S. with no postpartum care. Hmm. So that sort of made me realize that the way that things were done in the U.S. was sort of not about the well-being of women and babies. Hmm. And then meanwhile, I started listening to all my friends' birth stories. I became very curious about the experiences that women were having in birth. And I started realizing that women kind of have two layers of the birth story. They have the one that you know, where they say, yeah, you know, the birth was, you know, scary things happened during the birth. Maybe there was an emergency or I had to be induced or that, you know, that there was a cesarean section that, you know, from which the baby was rescued or there was a NICU stay. But 
you know, all that matters is a healthy baby. It's over now and all that matters is a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. And th- that's sort of the story that makes everybody nod their head. And, you know, because that's what the story we want to tell about childbirth, that the, the sort of ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. But what I found that was that if you really hold space for women to tell the story of what happened during the birth, most of the time I observed that they would start to cry mm-hmm. at some point during that story. And the moment at which they started to cry was a moment at which they were being sort of bullied, coerced. At those moments, I would often think as an attorney, but wait a second, they can't do that to you. Mm. There's a law called the law of informed consent and refusal. They have to respect your voice in this process. You know, they can't just do things to you without asking. And when you ask for more information or when you say, no, you don't want that, they need to listen to you. But that was not happening over and over again in these stories. Mm. And then through my work, I was able to then professionally start to study the issue of how women were being treated during childbirth hmm. internationally. And one measure of that is the, is the way that cesarean section is currently being used and the way that it's being implemented, the way that women are sort of um, led into these cesarean sections in different places. Because, you know, in the U.S., the cesarean section rate spiked from 5 to 30, 33%. But, you know, it was 5% when I was born in 1974. It's now, you know, one-third of every woman gets cesarean sections. And outcomes have not improved Mm-hmm. In that, with that increase, which tells us something about whether those things, those surgeries are ne- necessary. And in fact, maternal mortality is increasing in our nation, mm-hmm. which you would expect given the overuse of a surgery that triples the woman's risk of dying in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And so then what I started to learn when I studied this was that these surgeries were being imposed on women in coercive ways, in ways that violated the, the law of informed consent and refusal through either the informed prong in which they're supposed to be accurately informed regarding the you know evidence of the safety of their options and the risks and benefits of their options. Women were being told things like you know it's just safer to give birth by surgery than vaginally, mm-hmm. or they were be the consent prong. If the women asked for more information or tried to exercise their right to decide whether they would give birth vaginally or by surgery, they were being bullied, coerced, or flat out overridden in mm-hmm. their refusal of surgery, and. And then as I looked at that, the pieces came together from the personal stories I was hearing from the people I knew and the stories that were being sort of recorded through studies globally, Mm. which are stories of disrespect, abuse, obstetric violence, and the imposition of trauma on women through the violation of their human right to autonomy in the Mm. form of informed consent and refusal, their human right of privacy, reproductive choice, the right to make decisions about highly personal matters like reproduction and childbirth, and their rights to non-discrimination in that the more layers of otherness Mm -hmm. the provider perceives on the birthing woman, the more likely they are to disrespect and abuse that woman, uh, to ignore her voice, um, and to actually ignore her needs in a way that can actually, that does globally increase her risk of dying and her risk of Uh, her baby's risk of dying in childbirth. So all of these I I recognize as sort of unaddressed human rights violations in that the human rights framework looking at childbirth globally only looked at survival, right? Mm. And that's the Mm -hmm. problem in the labor room too. People like, oh, did you survive? Is your baby alive? Then it doesn't matter what happened to you during the birth. But there's more than one road to a live mother and a live baby at the end. Mm -hmm. One of those roads is going to leave her traumatized and another road is going to leave her feeling empowered. Mm. Childbirth is this moment when women are both at their most vulnerable and their most powerful. And mm-hmm. the treatment that they receive at that moment amplifies their feeling of either vulnerability or power and can leave them feeling ultimately either more empowered or more vulnerable and even 
mm-hmm. traumatized in mm-hmm. lasting ways. Mm-hmm. So that's what inspired me to make this my work and to try to address those violations. Mm. Wow. <laughs> there, I think we could just end right there. There's just, <laughs> there's, there's so much content in that short description to answer that question and layers and layers of depth and truth and um, rage and insight. I I can imagine that our listeners are trying to take all of that in. And for some of them, it might be the first time that they're really hearing somebody like yourself speak to what is informed consent. What are my rights? I didn't know I had those rights. What do I do now? What could I have done differently? You know, it, it opens up this can of worms where sometimes for some of us, it appears to be easier if we just don't know these things. And what I mean by that is kind of like that ignorance of, well, I had no idea that any of this was important to consider as I was, as I was about to give birth. Um, whereas when we open up to what's really going on, it can generate so much emotional reaction that we don't even know what to do with it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Oh, yes. Um, And so there was a few things that you touched on that I would like to highlight. So the first thing that I heard you say was that the obstetrical community is specifically in the United States. I don't think it's much different in Canada was motivated through competition to take out the midwives as a competing factor. Is that, is that actually true? Like in your research and your experience, do you see it as a competitive factor or do you think there's something else going on there? Well, um, both and so certainly it's well documented, you know, in all the sort of documentation of the history of obstetrics and midwifery in the United States that organized medicine did sort of work in a concerted way to eliminate eliminate midwives, you know, from maternity care in the United States in a way that's kind of unique. Other nations might have disempowered their midwives and put doctors over them as sort of the ultimate authority in childbirth, but they didn't eliminate them from the field altogether. And the ways in which midwives are marginalized in different nations is interesting. For example, mm-hmm. in Europe, you know, I mean, you can look at the status of midwives closer to the Mediterranean versus farther away from the Mediterranean and look at the way, you know, in so- closer to the Mediterranean, they're not even allowed to, you know, catch the baby. They have to call the OB. You know what I mean? They have a limited, they're like a labor and delivery nurse, basically. Um, and, and then, you know, higher up, you know, when you get up to more Northern European nations, um, Scandinavia, of course, the Netherlands, um, the UK, uh, midwives are much more empowered within the system. And they're the first line of care, you know, for healthy women. And then the C-section rate maps on to the status of midwives in those nations. Um, uh, so in the United States, they were like totally eliminated. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, um, I just, you know, cause you're, you're just to pull up some evidence. I thought, okay, where did I just read some, some quotes, you know, famous quotes from this just the other day. And there was like a New Yorker article recently called a midwife in the North country um, that people, listeners can Google. Um, it's about, it just attracts a certified nurse midwife in New York, sort of trying to be able to, you know, provide some services to clients. And, and the, there's a lot of problems with this article um, because for example, it talks about um, it has this line, 
Half of U.S. states limit the role midwives can play as autonomous providers, a vestige of a time when doctors pressed for a monopoly in obstetric care beginning in the late 19th century. The problem with that sentence is vestige because it's far from a vestige. It's an ongoing current condition that Mm. doctors in the U.S. press for a monopoly in obstetric care and they work in a concerted way legally to do that. But it goes on, physicians who were mostly men regularly accused midwives who were mostly women and often immigrants and black women of crude, unsanitary and potentially fatal practices. So that whole story is a story of concerted mm-hmm. propaganda against midwives and, you know, especially black midwives, especially immigrant midwives, when black midwives had, in fact, you know, delivered many of the attended the births of many Americans, both slaved, both enslaved and not enslaved for centuries. And so, you know, again, and really held the knowledge of childbirth. They were sort of framed as dirty, gross, unmodern. Why, why would you, you know, the empowered consumer, allow your nice clean baby to be delivered by one of these, have a nice modern doctor? So the doctors really sort of obstetrics really um, leveraged, you know, emerging modernity. So it's all sort of happening culturally, right? There's a cultural sort of embrace Mm -hmm. of modernity of what is perceived as modern, of institutionalizational modernity, right? And the the doctors sort of market their form of obstetrics as that. Um, uh, Hmm. So yeah, crude, unsanitary, and potentially fatal practices. I get really concerted propaganda around this, which is really interesting to read about. Um, a letter to, about midwives in the Maryland Medical Journal, 1895, expressed a, le- a need to, quote, drive these unclean murderers out of their unlawful business. Hmm. It's very similar to the language that I see today in my advocacy for midwives. <laughs> hmm. um, that really, I mean, fundamentally, I mean, midwives in the U.S. are actually charged with murder in the face of a stillbirth that they attend outside the hospital. Any met- maternity provider who attends enough birth is going to see a stillbirth eventually. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., midwives have a vulnerability of being charged with murder, something that would not happen to an obstetrician. Mm-hmm. Joseph DeLee, an influential obstetrician, declared in 1915 that midwifery was a, quote, relic of barbarism and described childbirth as a, quote, pathological event that required forceps, sedatives, and, and often heroism. And that story of Joseph DeLee is a fascinating one because that was the sort of um, – that was the dogma and philosophy through which childbirth got reframed. What, what Delee said was childbirth is like a pitchfork through the perineum. <sighs> yes. And we rescue the women and the babies from that pitchfork through the perineum with forceps and episiotomy. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you see the irony there. This guy's put women, this guy and all, you know, and his male brothers have put women on their backs and obstetrics did that because, you know, modesty wouldn't let them conceptualize any other position. A, a mobile woman would be a savage woman. And that was also well documented. <laughs> any kind of mobility, any sort of manifestation of sexuality in childbirth hmm. is like unthinkable and probably savage. <laughs> yeah. And so they're on their backs, nice, clean, modest with shrouds, you know what I mean? So everybody's modesty is protected, which of course, the, there's a, there's sort of the history of the invention of the episiotomy is as of the woman on the back. The obstetrician observes the baby's head inevitably on the perineum, about to bust open the perineum, and then he invents the episiotomy to rescue her from that condition, right? Mm-hmm. So Dali then conceptually widely frames that as the pitchfork through the perineum from which the woman is delivered through, yes, sedatives. They did general anesthesia for a couple of generations there in the early 20th century. And then forceps and episiotomy and then the baby's pulled out and it's drugged because of the anesthesia and anesthesia so it's slapped on the butt and you know and then handed off to the nurse to go to the nursery and that whole cultural frame of what childbirth is comes from this sort of imposition of technology and delee was really clear in his talks 
if we frame childbirth as something that must happen with forceps and episiotomy, we will own childbirth because the midwives can't do that. It's outside <laughs> their scope. Mm-hmm. And so by inventing, by framing childbirth, you know, and just consider that in light of framing childbirth as something that only happens by, by surgery today, right? right. So childbirth, only, only those who have access to these particular tools and the way these tools are used on women's bodies are allowed to attend women in child, childbirth, say, with this risk factor, whether it's breach or twins, right? And mm-hmm. since you don't have that surgical capacity, you're not allowed to. Back then, it was forceps and episiotomy, which, of course, ironically, that, that's the pitchfork through the perineum, <laughs> <laughs> is the episiotomy and the forceps that so yet it's like what obstetrics always does which is do the thing to women that it's supposed to be rescuing the women from mm-hmm. um and so yeah that's what happened here mm-hmm. and i'm curious about a mother's experience within that framework and the mothers that you represent and a couple questions around that First of all, how do they even know to access your kind of support? You know, what what wakes them up to realizing that one of those um, rights that you highlighted were violated? Um, so, well, I guess, you know, the, the question before sort of how would a client find me is who are my clients, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. so, um, when, mm. you know, when, when I decided to make this my work, part of it was realizing that women who had experienced these abuses really couldn't find attorneys because the sort of... Um, ends justify the means the concept mm-hmm. of childbirth meant that and means that if they take a forced c-section or you know the intentional affliction of emotional distress mm-hmm. um, and the imposition of trauma to like that even if it's debilitating trauma mm-hmm. as a result of mistreatment that they experienced during birth to a lawyer the lawyer will say is the baby alive are you permanently physically injured no that there's really nothing I can do for you. And that's because the lawyers are looking, you know, they're looking at the, at, you know, it, it's a pretty new action to ask courts to recognize mental injury mm-hmm. as, um, as injury that, sh- that should be, sub- you know, but, given but redress. Been mitigated. Yeah. Yes. And, and subject to liability, but without, right. but it's absolutely necessary to bring those kinds of lawsuits because currently, you know, obstetrics in the U.S. and not only in the U.S., I think in many other nations is increasingly liability driven and, you know, doctors do not perceive the violation of informed consent and refusal as a liability risk. And that can't, that won't change unless actions are brought for its violation and those actions result in money damages. But because those are sort of new kinds of, those are much more radical actions than suing for, um, you know, a dead baby when there wasn't an intervention, you know, that could have happened. Mm-hmm. It's hard for women to find lawyers. And similarly, midwives have a hard time finding lawyers when they're subject to legal persecution, which they really are yeah. <laughs> in a lot of spaces for a lot, in a lot of different ways. Um, and so um, my clients are um, um, women who have um, experienced the violation of their rights during childbirth and, and helping them to sort of articulate their story and um, express that story in the whatever setting might get them some acknowledgement or redress about what occurred, whether that's, you know, that a lawsuit is one avenue, but it's not the only avenue. Filing complaints against medical licensing boards or nursing licensing boards um, is another way that providers can be held accountable there or you know government bodies that oversee hospitals so that if the hospital sort of concerted to violate somebody's rights the hospital can be held accountable mm-hmm. um and so sort of helping women in that way and then representing midwives um you know in b- both defending them when they are being attacked for you know the way that they work as midwives or for supporting women in their choices mm-hmm. and then advocating for them for their right to get paid fairly 
um, which is a, a major impediment to sort of equi- their, their right, their sustainability for midwifery and their ability to sort of practice mm-hmm. um, in many settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far as how do women with, you know, who've experienced the violation of their rights, you know, find me, I'm, your question was, you know, what would wake them up? Like, that's not, that's not part of my job, right? The people who find me are the ones who came. I think the prevalence of these violations is mm-hmm. very wide because it's um, it's a cultural phenomenon within it, obstetrics to ignore informed consent, right? Yes. But like how many women come out of that with a consciousness of trauma is a small yes. number. Yes. A lot of them accept those violations as standard of care. It's the way everybody gives birth. I sort of, mm-hmm. I don't expect more than to have my baby delivered in this way for this to be something I just sort of get through and don't think much about afterward or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, but some women do come out traumatized and of the women who come out traumatized, a smaller number pursue redress, a much smaller number mm-hmm. because of those who come out traumatized, the vast majority are shut down mm-hmm. by their loved ones who say, you know, by everybody around them, they, they might mention it at the postpartum visit to the other providers in the group who say, oh, you know, he, he or she has a terrible bedside manner or we're sorry you had a bad experience, but basically blow it off. Mm-hmm. And then their own family members, you know, might say, why are you still talking about the birth? Shouldn't you have moved on by now? You know, it's okay. You and the baby are healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, are you having postpartum depression? Is this hormones? Mm-hmm. And in that way, they're not, there's not really space that validates what happened to them. And they're not able to sort of find the courage to say, you are all crazy. What happened to me is wrong. And I've got to, I've got to do something about this. So uh, within those women, there's a much smaller subset of women that then are like, I've got to do something about this. I'm carrying this around. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm experiencing these flashbacks around it all the time. I can't drive out of that hospital without you know, mm-hmm. a panic attack, et cetera. You know, the, the ways that trauma manifests are broad mm-hmm. and long lasting. And, um, and some of those women sort of look, are, look for um, avenues for holding, you know, folks accountable. And, um, and, you know, I guess one way that people have found me is through birthmonopoly.com because that's an American website mm-hmm. and organization that focuses on obstetric violence. Um, but really, I think there's um, probably a much higher need for this kind of advocacy um, and for, you know, ways for women to, um, to sort of find it and sort mm-hmm. of make their voices heard about what they're experiencing. Oh, I would agree. Uh, you know, I just think that so many of the moms that I work with who've experienced exactly what you have been speaking about are often left with this sense of emptiness and also confusion around what, what am I supposed to do with the new awareness that I have? Where can I actually um, direct some of that anger? How can I file a complaint you know, who would represent me in any of this in particular, because many of us, even at professionals don't fully understand what the rights are, how the rights were violated and what could be done about that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not something that childbirth professionals talk about in their preparation and their prenatal preparation with clients, not mm-hmm. necessarily. It's often not discussed with doulas you know, we talk about what their rights are, but not really, not mm. to the degree that you've just outlined. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this lofty idea that, oh, yeah, of course, I have a right to autonomy to my body. Mm. But under a certain circumstance in which 
we now feel the most vulnerable we've ever felt in our life Mm -hmm. while we're giving birth. And somebody interjects who has more power in that space because Mm -hmm. they're presenting themselves as the person with the most authority, whether Mm -hmm. that's true or not. Or being supported by the staff as that person. Exactly. And then all of a sudden there's a recommendation that's made. It doesn't (coughs) occur to that person Mm -hmm. who's in that situation that actually there's space for them to contemplate, to make a decision. And one of the decisions could be no. Mm -hmm. Like that is just not within people's awareness until now they're sitting, you know, with me therapeutically and we're doing the deep healing work around what they experienced throughout their birth in which they then come to awareness that they didn't realize that they had that kind of decision-making power. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just, I just sit here and I just think about how huge this is and how prevalent it is, obviously. And I, I guess the next question without going into a big discussion about all of this would be how, how can we frame informed consent? How can we, how can we um, inform the public? How can we inform the pregnant people? How can we also change the conversation around birth amongst people like doulas and midwives who are probably going to have more of those conversations than your obstetrical staff will, mm-hmm. you know, with their, with their clients, with their pregnant families. How can we include, uh, how can we, f- well, how can we frame the conversation of mm. informed consent mm-hmm. ahead of time? Because mm-hmm. we all have a different understanding of what that really means. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have a, a fantastic way of being able to explain it. Um, and how can both the pregnant families gain insight and understanding around what their rights are and also the childbirth professionals become informed about that and be able to have those conversations ahead of time? Mm-hmm. Um, well, um I mean, Simple, step one what is informed consent, <laughs> right? I mean, right. Step one is for pe- for the for people to know their rights, and and that includes for sort of the birthing people to know their rights, and mm-hmm. for their support team to know what those rights are, so that they're not in that situation of feeling like, well, can can I say no? You know, can I? What are my options here? Can will I have to leave if I don't if I decline? You know, this recommendation, um, and and so you know, I I think doulas have an important role to play in understanding sort of what women's rights are and and sort of being clear that those rights exist in their jurisdiction, you know, that these rights are in fact the law of this state or this province. And, um, you know, that that recognizing that this birth team might not have thought through the implications of that law for this clinical situation, but that if need be, you can remind them of that. (laughs) And so I think, you know, one way that I think about you know, this raises sort of what's the doula's role with regard to those rights. And I mean, I think that when you think about sort of the client knowing the rights and then what's the doula's role, I think if you're working with, you know, doulas, then the doulas have to ask themselves, you know, or ask their clients, do you want me to, what, what, how important is this issue to you? And I think that's part of probably talking through what is important with this client about this birth. Hmm. Um, What are their needs from their support team? And if being respected as the decision maker and the birth is, is really important to them, then they need to know what their rights are. And then the question is, do they want the doula to play a role in holding about protecting that right and making sure that that right is respected in the room? Because if they are, then it's possible for 
the doula's role to be clearly defined in that way, not only between the doula and the client, but for, you know, between for the team, for the whole birth team, the OBs, the nurses, and everybody else, the other midwives, mm-hmm. um, in in that the client can say, you know, this is my doula Jennifer, and her role here is to support me, give that one-on-one care that I'm looking for, and also just to be present for our interactions, our clinical interactions, just to keep an eye on the informed consent process and make sure that before any intervention happens, somebody's looking me in the eyes and talking to me about what they want to have happen and why and answering my questions and making sure that I have the opportunity to decide whether I want that intervention before it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and and mm-hmm. what do you, in your experience, mm-hmm. what are some of the limitations of the informed consent process? Hmm. Um, I mean, the limitation is that it's not observed and respected. It, 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 if it's respected, it should be effective because what it should mean is that before anybody touches a woman who is laboring um, or touches her newborn, they look her in the eyes and they say what they want to do. And they explain what her alternative options are to doing that thing. And if they have a recommendation of what they actually want to do an intervention, why that's their recommendation, what the risks are of that. And, and, and then they have to answer any questions the patient has, and then they have to support the patient in making the decision. So, you know, yeah, that, that's what the patient has a right to have happen before any touching. And so what about this idea that, that the way in which the information is delivered um, obviously can come across as coercive. It can either be overt or, um, what is it? Covert? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That, well, that gets back to the back to the problem with informed consent is that it's not respected. And okay. the ways in which it's violated include sort of violating the informed prong, which is supposed to be about having an, a truthful, mm-hmm. unbiased, accurate, objective conversation that's not about pushing the person into what the provider wants them to decide. And the consent prong, which is about supporting the person and being the decision maker about whether that's going to happen. One way that I break this down for providers to help them be more mindful of how they do informed consent is to tell them that a good way to, to do that, to do to fulfill their legal obligation to the client, would be to think about it as three-pronged, actually. That first, there's the sort of inform prong, which is where they, you know, objectively, the keyword is objective, inform the client of their their medical options and the risks and benefits of their options. And then the advise prong, which can be subjective, in which they tell the client what they think the client should do and why. And then the um, support prong, which is supporting that person in, in actually giving or withholding their consent, freely giving or withholding consent on what, you know, whether they want to move forward. But if they think about it conceptually that way to break out the subjective mm-hmm. and the objective elements, mm-hmm. that it can help them to not what they so often do is maybe unconsciously blur their -hmm. advice with their delivery of information in a way that's ultimately misinforming the client. Mm -hmm. And, and to take that one step further, and I'm thinking of Michael Klein and his presentation. And um, for those people who don't know Michael Klein, you might want to go ahead and Google him. He's, he's well known in Canada and has written a book called the dissident doctor and Hermine and I, we're at the conference with him and I'm thinking about his presentation on um, statistics and how we've come up with the medical recommendations or the, within the community of obstetrics and how um, often the statistics aren't accurate 
um, or we're getting misinformation or the studies that were being done don't actually represent the demographics in the way that they need to. And so, you know, obviously a family is not going to do a ton of research to look into whether or not this is statistically accurate or supportive or, you know, whether they should take it into consideration. We're just going to believe that if the statistics quote say this, these are your risks and benefits, we're just going to absorb that information as truth because it's coming from a medical practitioner. We're not going to question it most often. Mm -hmm. Some some people will, like somebody like myself who is pretty radical, definitely <laughs> did, but very few do, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then taking that into consideration and how that information skews the person's decision and often injects fear. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious if you have any opinions about that, if I'm off the mark on well, this. I mean, look, it's like the, the provider has a, a legal obligation to, you know, give objective information in a non-coercive way. And if they're not doing that, they are violating their obligation and that's on them. But the patient has a responsibility to engage in their right to make a medical decision. And they can choose to say, doctor, tell me what to do and I'll do it. But that too is a choice. They have the right to change their mind at any time and say, you know, I actually have changed my mind. <laughs> mm. Or I have some more questions. You know, actually nobody gets to say, oh, you already, you know, told us that you consented. They get to, with, you know, with, withdraw it. But, and and that, what, that just emphasizes the fact that they remain responsible as a decision maker. And, you know, and so I guess that's part of like sort of the educating and then, mm. you know, that's needed for those who want to, you know, it's, it's you, you, those who want to, empowered birth or a birth, non-traumatic birth have mm -hmm. to make that choice. Nobody can make that choice for them. And then if they want to do it, they have to take responsibility for getting, for, for taking each person's advice to them for what it is. Mm -hmm. Their OB is going to have a, some advice that comes from their paradigm. Mm -hmm. Their midwife might have a different perspective. Their doula might have a different perspective. Their mom, their husband, wife, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. their, you know, their friends. And that's okay. All, all those folks are free to express their opinion of that person, what they think they, they should, that, that, that the person should do. But ultimately it, the responsibility lies with the, with the, with the person, mm -hmm. you know, the person who is having the medical treatment or going through this experience to decide how they want to be supported. And it's everybody around them, the obligation of everybody around them to support them um, in that process. Mm. And so this brings up the conversation around responsibility. How mm -hmm. do you define responsibility? Well, it's, it's just understanding that agency, um, you know, claiming your right and with it, you know, so the responsibility that comes with it, it means that you can't turn around and say afterward, I shouldn't have been allowed to decide because I couldn't possibly understand. You know, and do think, you ever hear that? Oh, it's definitely a phenomenon. I mean, sometimes I'm defending providers from such claims right. and that too, you know, so I'm, I'm in those cases, if we're advocating for a provider against a birthing woman who has perhaps had a tragic outcome, experienced a stillbirth from a risk factor that manifested, you know, in, because basically all the choices, there's risk factors behind most choices in childbirth, mm -hmm. you know, there's, and, and sometimes you'll, you, a, a choice will be made and one of the risk factors of that choice will manifest and somebody won't survive. They're, they're, you know, some, uh, and often the person who's at most risk of not surviving childbirth is the baby. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, legal action can result. And those actions can turn on providers and say, you shouldn't have allowed me to decide. And in those cases, I will defend the providers. Because, you know, if, if the legal system says, 
she shouldn't have been allowed to decide the doctor's the expert and, you know, should have told her what to do, then that means that women don't have the right to decide. And that, that, that puts an obligation on the providers to make the decision. It puts them in the terrible position of having to sort of force treatment mm-hmm. on women that, when they don't want that treatment. And that's not what the law should require. I'm so glad that you spoke about this because this is the flip side that we often don't want to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of birth trauma, you know, this idea that if, if what it is that I experienced um, was so horrifying and was a violation of my rights and my autonomy, mm-hmm. and then the ways in which I need to deal with those emotions is to project it all onto my caregiver to make them wrong, then we're just actually, we're not doing any healing, we're just com- completely um, you know, vomiting that all over the other person without taking any responsibility. And so part of, in my work, part of the healing journey is to actually take a look at our own, where our responsibility was in all of this, um, not without considering, is there a legitimate complaint that needs to be filed here? Yeah. You know, but it's not coming from that place of now I'm going to make you the bad person and the wrong person because actually I didn't want to have responsibility, nor should I have had the power to be able to have decided in this situation what I needed. I hired you as the professional to do that. That's mm-hmm. a really dangerous place to be. Right. It sort of it, it forfeits your agency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, and women have done that in all kinds of contexts um, for it, for a long time. Mm. And so, you know, and that's an aspect of the choice that, you know, women have around childbirth. Mm. The says. Well, let's transition a little bit here. Cause I think, um, you know, that was a really important piece of conversation and I'd like to spend a, spend some time chatting about boundaries in the birth room. Um, I know we talked a bit about informed consent and communication and the role of the doula. And I think you had mentioned to me that you had written, an article or you posted something called boundaries in the birth room. Am I correct? Yes. It's something that's been on my mind a lot. Okay. This year. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Why don't you talk a bit about that? It's a great, well, sure. Great title. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, so you and I met at the Alberta midwives conference, um, mm-hmm. this, this year. And we were also, we, we met more briefly, I think the previous year or was it the year before that the, the I, I went when to I was with conference there. We didn't meet there. You weren't there physically that time. No, we would have just maybe crossed paths when I was um, in a vice president role with the MCAN um, organization with Lolly. Okay, right. But we we really met this year for sure. Well, the previous year when I was at the Alberta conference, I I was, again, you know, invited to speak that year as well. And I gave a a presentation on um, sort of division and solidarity within midwifery and midwives relationships with each other as, you know, and the way that affects their ability to advocate collectively. Hmm. And um, a young midwife in the audience raised her hand and said, made this comment, you know, I find it difficult to be in a relationship with women who don't have good boundaries because women who have good boundaries will tell you if something's wrong and you can talk about it and work it out. But women who don't, they won't tell you if something's wrong. And so you might sense that something's wrong and you might even ask them and they might deny it and something's there and they'll take these little steps that undermine trust in your relationship, but you're not talking it out. They're not able to sort of tell you what's going on. And so you're not able to sort of resolve it. And and then instead the sort of relationship falls apart. And there was a lot of, you know, nodding in the room because most women recognize that dynamic in our relationships with each other. And, um, 
you know, for me that it, it, it opened up to me a new concept of boundaries as like not pushing people away, but inviting them in um, and loving them enough to say, trusting them enough and tr- and being brave enough to say, you know, this dynamic or this thing that's happened is not okay with me or it hurts me or it hurt me. And I can't have it in my relationship with you. And I'm open to a relationship with you in which that's not the case. Um, and it's not happening, but that's what I would need to be in relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And um, like, I, and, I, and that just got me thinking about how we as women are socialized to not really be able to do that. You know, we're supposed to, we're sort of socialized to sort of hold the social fabric together and there and not sort of, and therefore avoid confrontation and conflict. And to the point that it's really difficult for many women to have any kind of confrontation because for them a confrontation can lead to a conflict and conflict is to be avoided. Hmm. Um, and it can sort of, and it threatens the sort of social fabric and it threatens relationships and they're just deeply uncomfortable with any kind of confrontation. And so I, I started to think about that. It's relevant, the relevance of that issue in the birth room, hmm. because so often from doulas, for example, I'd heard the, you know, the, about the scenario in which their client's been really clear about, you know, for example, not wanting an episiotomy um, and a routine episiotomy. And and they've communicated that clearly and they've been told that it won't happen and their baby is crowning and the doctor is just reaching for the scissors for a routine episiotomy. And doulas in that situation have been, you know, what can I do? Can I, inter- can I say, hey, stop? She hmm. said no, you know, and, and sort of, f- sort of starting to think about their own feelings and vulnerabilities in that moment. And so what, you know, I think the boundaries concept can help us to think about is in that moment, what would be required, you know, say if the, if the, if the doula's role is to protect informed consent in that space is to say, Hey, stop. She said no. Hmm. And that's holding a boundary. And so the, just the idea of doing that should make anybody, any supporter who's thinking about doing that for a woman explore, how would that feel for me to stand in that space, mm-hmm. you know, and against these, you know, a doctor and the face of these nurses, everybody might look at me like I'm crazy. And say, she said, no, you need to stop or to be able to hold this or, or in a less urgent situation when you're saying, Hey, what are you about to put something in that IV? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, is your heart going to pound? What are the issues that are going to come up? But then also what's, what's going to happen in the relationship between the birthing woman and the doula at that moment, if the doula says, Hey, stop, she -hmm. said no. And the woman then says, the birthing woman says, Ooh, you know, Jennifer, could you just speak a little sweeter? Oh, when you're talking to the doctor, I'm sorry, doctor, mm-hmm. you know, I know that what you're in, you just do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Then now you're exposed and vulnerable for having set that boundary when the woman didn't have, you know, wasn't herself able to hold it. Mm-hmm. And so what that, you know, I think what the implications of this is that it's sort of worth it for doulas and their clients to talk through what is there a boundary that the client wants the doula to hold or that the birthing woman wants anybody, her husband to hold, you know, anybody to hold a friend. Mm-hmm. She needs to think about, like, be clear with them if she wants them to do that for her. And then they need to talk about both of their ability together to be able to hold boundaries. And the birthing woman's ability to sort of have, be clear that this is what she's asking the doula to do and have that person's back and sort of, you know, leaving space for nuance, of course. You know, she mm-hmm. wants the doula to do it in a way that's ultimately probably respectful and that doesn't, you know, make things worse. And they need to have as many conversations as are necessary to try to get on the same page regarding how they want those moments to play out if they happen. But mm-hmm. doing so will hope, you know, is an opportunity to build trust in that relationship and also clarity about what that doula's role is going to be in the room in a way that hopefully will make them both feel stronger and safer in, um, 
together and, you know, and, and sort of navigating those moments in a way that ultimately is not rejecting of the other person. You know, it's like, that's the model that that midwife brought to me. It's like saying, my dear, I'm not rejecting you, but you better put those scissors down. (laughs) You, you know, it's not ultimate, it's not a hateful thing. It's Mm. ultimately a loving thing to Mm. say, you know, wait a second, I'm going to have to remind everybody of what this woman's rights are because you are at risk of inflicting trauma that you're not intending to inflict. It's making me think of one of the videos you have out there called The Ethical Doula. Mm. And, and I think that's a great YouTube video for many people to watch. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what the Cornerstone you... Doulas, I think, interview that you might be talking about with it me might... and um, 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 Nikki Tilsner. Mm. It, it might be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really well done. And I mean, that's what you're talking about here is, you know, bringing ethics into the birth room, knowing what the rights are, having the conversation about those rights, outlining them in a way that's digestible for, you know, the everyday family, right? Mm-hmm. And and then coming up with a plan, not just a birth plan around here's my hopes and dreams, but an advocacy plan that's like, look, you're hiring me to be here to witness this process so that you can have the best outcome possible. And the outcome, as you said, isn't just so that, you know, my baby and I are alive at the end of it. The outcome is that I can have a thriving postpartum, that Mm -hmm. I'm not at risk of birth trauma, thus resulting in a diagnostics of postpartum depression or anxiety that then requires me to be treated medically and with, with medication potentially. And it's just a slippery slope. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, one of my sayings is that we need to also consider the safety of the neurophysiology of the mom and babe, Mm -hmm. not just the physiology, because the neurophysiology is that if we have a healthy nervous system, if we have a coherent nervous system, we have a healthy family unit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I'm hearing that your advocate, you know, that your work is all about. And it's exceptional that you represent you know, both mothers and families and midwives and doulas, right? So you're, you're, you're there for everybody. <laughs> well, it's moving beyond, you know, all yeah. that matters is a healthy baby yes. to, yes, a healthy baby matters and a healthy mother matters. And if you want a healthy baby, make a healthy mother, because exactly. guess what? There's more for that, you know, that healthy baby needs more than just surviving birth. Yes. It needs a healthy, thriving mother that yes. is, you know, feels ready to, to, to dive into motherhood. You know, and, and was supported lovingly and respectfully through the mm-hmm. incredible, you know, hardcore process of bringing that baby into this world. Totally. It's, it's not too much to, for women to ask. But the reason we're not getting it is because we haven't asked for it yet. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's a powerful statement. I think we should close on on that statement that the reason why we're not getting it is because we haven't asked for it yet. And part yes. of that is we maybe didn't know to ask for it or know how to ask for it. We're starting now. I think so. And I think Mm -hmm. we just have, you know, from my perspective, we have so much information that supports the need for a healthy nervous system to um, cultivate healthy bonding Mm -hmm. and attachment and a good mental health and good relational health. And so the information's there. Now we can start asking for it and then we can be supported in that. So it's kind of exciting. I think so. <laughs> it's big work. Yay. I'm glad you're on the planet. You too. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Hermine. My great pleasure. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for this podcast and for the work, very important work that you do to support women through birth trauma.
Thank you. And mm-hmm. for our listeners, all of the information to learn more about Hermine will be in the show notes, including her website. And um, I'm just I'm also going to plug a workshop that Hermine and I are planning for spring 2020 uh, plans for it to be in Vancouver, Canada. And so stay tuned for more information about that. And once we um, have a link for it, it'll also be in the show notes or you can reach out to either of us. I'm really excited about this opportunity. Me too. Yay. Thank you, Jennifer. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye.